thank you uh, for being here. I'm Jason Hicks, the elected district attorney here for Grady County and the state of Oklahoma. Uh, I've been the elected district attorney now for 12 years. I just started my fourth term, going into year 13. Today, uh, Lawrence Paul Anderson entered the plea guilty uh, to five counts that he was charged with arising out of an incident in February of 2021. Uh, three counts of murder in the first degree, uh, one count with respect to the death of Chaos Winterrain Yates, one count with respect to Leon Pye, one count with respect to Andrea Blankenship, and then two counts um, with respect to Delcy Pye, one of those being assault and battery with a deadly weapon and the other count being maiming. Anderson was sentenced to three life without parole sentences and two life sentences. All of those counts are to run consecutive each to the other, meaning he has to serve count one before he can begin count two. So they're going to be consecutive sentences and three life without paroles and two lives. Basically what that means is he is never going to get out of prison. And the intent of the agreement, as I'm sure you heard while we were in the courtroom, was to ensure that he never steps outside of the prison. And not only that, but to ensure that nobody can ever modify these sentences. That was something that was extremely important, not only to my office, but also to the family members of the victims in this case, as well as Delcy Pye being a victim. This was an especially gruesome case in my 12 years as an elected prosecutor, 22 total as an attorney. I don't think I can find another case that's going to quite compare to this one. There's evidence that's in the possession of my office as well as the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation that's so shocking after I reviewed it, it kept me up at night for weeks. It brings me to the question uh, that I think a lot of people are going to have, and that question is why. Why would Anderson be given the opportunity to escape a sentence of death? Uh, and that's a complex answer. Um, but I want, and I want to say this first, um, because a lot of people are going to want to comment on this and want to criticize what has happened today. But I'm going to ask everybody in this room, don't assume that you know everything. You didn't have the conversations that I had with the victim's families. You've not been there with the victim's family. This was done at the request of those victims uh, and their family members and ask, walk a mile in their shoes. Um, in the state of Oklahoma today, uh, it seems as if victims are walked right across the top of as we go to try to investigate a case or go to try to prosecute a case. Victims need to have a much louder voice in all of this process than they ever have had before. In this particular instance, I'm going to ask you to walk a mile in the shoes of those survivors, Delcy Pye. Quindessa Flowers and everybody in here heard and saw what happened uh, with Quindessa, very emotional um, victim impact statement. Taranzo Pai, the father of a four-year-old child who was murdered. Tasha Yates, who's the mother of the four-year-old. John Hayden Blankenship, Haley Blankenship, Martha Canary, Craig Blankenship, just to name a few of the family members who are left uh, with this particular case. They're the ones that have to live with all the pieces. They have to pick the pieces up and move forward. So the request for this uh, came just before the scheduled preliminary hearing, and a lot of you in here I've dealt with you, I've worked with you over the years. Um, you saw that the preliminary hearing in this particular case was waived. Extremely unusual in a case wherein a bill of particulars or a sentence of death is going to be handed down or sought by the state of Oklahoma. That came up because the testimony that was going to occur in that preliminary hearing was going to, in my opinion, harm 
the victims and victims' families more that it was going to help them move forward. Uh, I had an agreement with the defense to uh, actually do depositions in this case. I've never agreed to that. I never, and probably will never do that again. But the reason that that was done was because this case was different. This case was so sensational and it's being covered so heavily that there's a lot of people that don't have any idea of exactly what all happened. They just know that Lawrence Anderson committed these murders. This case is now two years old, um, and, you know, this is something else that went into this consideration. It could be another year, it could be another two years before we even get it to trial. And that's not, again, that's not fair to this family, making them wait and wait and wait uh, as we move forward. And then, uh, you know, what we're talking about as far as this case goes, the length of time that a trial is going to take, I, I look at it and think it's probably going to be two months uh, at a minimum, if we can even get a jury in the first month. And, and that's something that I think uh, has to be addressed is the amount of it of uh, coverage that this case got. And I think everybody in here understands, and I understand it's a sensational case and people want to know about it, but rarely do we ever have a case in which stuff like this goes into people's mailboxes. And this is a flyer that was sent out uh, last year during the governor's campaign. And in this flyer, it talks about Andrea Blankenship's heart being cut out. Can you imagine being the daughter of Andrea Blankenship and opening up your mailbox and seeing that flyer in it? And those flyers went out to people all over Grady County. It wasn't just that one flyer. There were multiple flyers. I have deep concerns about being able to get a jury inside Grady County. I continue to have those concerns and will always have those concerns, in particular with this, with this particular case. Uh, I have to, and the state has to, the courts have to ensure that this defendant gets a fair trial. And when the amount of attention that's been given to this case occurs, it makes it extremely difficult to have jurors come in and say, uh, I have not already made up my mind. Because as I walked around in the community and talked to people, one of the first things you always heard is, well, why haven't we taken care of this guy? We just need to go ahead and execute him today prior to even having a trial. And that was going to make it extremely difficult to get a jury here. And I think, uh, as I said, eight weeks for a trial, I'm thinking it probably would have taken a good four weeks uh, just to get a jury seated because we would have had to do a lot of individual voir dire just to have conversations with people so that they can open up and tell the courts, tell the state, and tell the defense that they can listen to the evidence inside this case and make a decision based upon what they hear in the courtroom. This was done so that the family can have some peace and to know that they can go into the community without having to worry about all of the sensational and gory details of this case having been uh, talked about inside a courtroom. A lot of people already know a lot of the details because of the medical examiner's report and what's inside the uh, affidavit in this particular case. But the details that aren't going to be out in the open now, it was worth it to this family to say, we want him to plead guilty and to get out uh, this county so we don't have to deal with it anymore. To add to this delay, as you heard, uh, I mentioned it in the courtroom, uh, the one of the victims, Chaos uh, Yates, along with Andrew Blankenship, were both of native uh, lineage. That caused a fairly significant delay because we waited on the state to appeal the Castro Huerta case that went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, finally coming back and telling us, the state of Oklahoma, that you actually can prosecute a case when you have a defendant who has harmed an Indian victim. 
This clearly happened inside the Chickasaw Reservation. The Chickasaw Reservation goes out to the west of Chickasha, Chickasha, so we never had, there was never a question about did it occur on the reservation or in the reservation, because it did. The question was, are we going to be able to prosecute this case, even though we have two victims that have Indian lineage? And fortunately, the Supreme Court, and in my opinion, got it right on that and said, yeah, state of Oklahoma, you do have an interest in prosecuting your own citizens, even when they have harmed uh, an Indian uh, in, under any whatever circumstances it may be. I think it's fair to say that these families have had enough. Uh, they've heard enough. They've seen enough. These family lost. These families have lost pretty much everything. Uh, as you uh, can imagine, Delcy Pye lost her husband and one of her grandchildren, and was attacked at the same time and watched both of uh, those people, uh, watched both of them die. Watched Lawrence Anderson take their lives, snatch their lives out uh, from underneath her as she laid there after she had been attacked. So some of the reasons, uh, some of the other reasons that we did this, uh, first, as I said, uh, we did this because it was a request of the family. Um, and I'm always, uh, and would say, I always try to err on the side of the victims. I'm always going to give the victims a voice inside my office. I think we've done that for 12 years, and I'm going to continue trying to do that. Uh, in a case such as this, when you have a situation where you're talking about a, a sentence of death, I need that family to be on board with me because it is going to take a significant amount of time to get that case from uh, murder to uh, charge to prosecution to conviction uh, through the appeals and down the road uh, we go. So I would say I think the trauma uh, that this family's experience would have been echoed and amplified had we went gone ahead and moved forward uh, with a bill of particulars and forced this case to go to trial. I would say there's been enough trauma as it is now, and I'm not going to add to that trauma simply because I want to walk in and stand in front of a bunch of cameras and say, look what I did. That's not fair. It's not fair to the victims. They should have a huge voice in any of this. The other one was the length of time. I would note today uh, in the state of Oklahoma, there's 39 people who have been sentenced to death. And of those 39, um, there are eight of them that committed their murder prior to the year 2000. There are another 16 of those that committed their crimes between 2000 and 2010. While I recognize that there was a moratorium put on the death penalty in the state of Oklahoma for uh, several years, I think it's disgusting to think that somebody can sit on death row 15, 20, 25 years uh, while a family has to continue going through all of the trauma of uh, the appeals. I'm going to point to a case down in Stevens County. Uh, it's, it's State versus Miles Bench. Miles took the life of a 16-year-old child in a Velma convenience store. I know that family. I see that family frequently. And what that family went through the night that they were advised, and it would have been June of 2012 when Braley was taken away from them, what they went through that night was bad enough, but they continue to go through that every time they get a phone call from the attorney general's office, every time they get a phone call from my office to talk about what's going on with the case. It's been 11 years since Braley was murdered. That particular case, when McGirt was handed down, that case was reversed by the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals because both the defendant and the victim in that case have Indian lineage. When they got that phone call, the emotions that they went through and that they suffered through were exactly the same emotions that they went through the night that they found out their daughter was murdered. It's not fair and it's not right. Now, that case has been reinstated. That sentence was reinstated. He is now back on death row. 
But that family goes through it every time. Every time they get a phone call from the attorney general, every time they get a phone call from me or my office, every time I have a conversation with them, they're going back through the same emotions they went through the night that they found out their 16-year-old daughter was murdered. And again, I'm going to say in the state of Oklahoma, it's not fair to the victims that we treat them that way. And that's part of the reason why I see this uh, and am doing this here in Oklahoma. And I would note, uh, in the state of Texas, I did a little research yesterday. In the state of Texas today, uh, their average stay on death row from the date of conviction to execution is around 11 years. Of those 39 people in Oklahoma, if Oklahoma applied that same standard, we'd have nine people on death row right now instead of 39. Think about that. 11 years is the average in Oklahoma. Nine people are left on death row. And a whole bunch of families across the state have gotten the justice and the peace that they need out of the loss of a loved one. It's time for Oklahoma to do something. Oklahoma can do better than this. Ecclesiastes 8.11 teaches us this. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of, of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. In other words, when we delay justice, there's a problem there. And people are going to continue with their evil deeds more and more and more because justice is delayed. And I think there's uh, an old adage that says and goes like this, justice delayed is justice denied. And in this particular instance, what we're doing with these people that are sitting on death row, we are denying justice to them because we're not getting people executed quickly enough. I would, I would suggest that uh, a group of prosecutors, a group uh, who have experience with the death penalty, a group of defense attorneys who have experience with the death penalty and judges who have experience with the death penalty get together and sit down and figure out a way to put this thing back together so that we can actually have a system that works, a system that is fair to not only the defendant, but in particular to the victim's families after the loved one is taken from them. I think it's time that we do that. You know, now we sit and we look at this case. Um, you know, it's been a little over two years uh, uh, that Anderson took the lives of three, almost four people. And I'm going to point to another case in, in Cotton County. Uh, that's the case of Ricky Wright Malone. And I think a lot of people in here are going to know exactly what case that is. Malone killed trooper Nikki Green. That was almost 20 years ago. I was an assistant district attorney in Stevens County at the time. I remember it, and I remember it well because Trooper Green was a part of Troop G. And when the word went out that a trooper in Troop G had been murdered on the side of the road, all of us in law enforcement were sick because we knew it was one of ours. It was one of the guys that we work with on a regular basis, and his life was snatched away and taken from him. Almost 20 years and this is somebody who took the life of a law enforcement officer. That family, Nick's widow and daughters, deserve better. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with this and take some questions here in just a second. I touched on it uh, a little bit, and that's the difficulty in finding a jury. I've prosecuted a lot of cases over the years. Um, in, in fact, uh, in some conversations, it seems that uh, this district, my four counties, which are Caddo, Grady, Stevens, and Jefferson County, for whatever reason, we've had a lot of really high-profile cases over the years. And in this particular instance, I don't know that I've prosecuted one that I was as worried about a jury, finding a jury as I am with this one. 
Christopher Lane was the Australian baseball player that was murdered in Stevens County in 2013. And we all know that one caught international attention. I wasn't as worried about finding a jury in Stevens County on that case as I was in this one. I think the guilt of Anderson had permeated this community. And I think it would have been extremely difficult to find people that were going to sit down and be fair to not only the state of Oklahoma, but also to the defendant in this particular case. So I'm going to say this again. I think it's time that we as Oklahomans uh, take measures and ensure that the death penalty is carried out fairly and quickly. And note, in 2016, everybody should remember, there was a state question on the ballot. What was it about? It was about the death penalty and making sure that the people of the state of Oklahoma unequivocally said the death penalty in Oklahoma is not a cruel and unusual measure. That passed with 66% of the vote. I think the people spoke. The people in the state of Oklahoma want the death penalty, and they want it executed in a timely manner, not what we're seeing today. With that, uh, and, and let, me, let me acknowledge something real quick. In the back of the room, and I know they're going to throw something at me here in just a minute, are agents Michael Francis and Brenna Alvarez with the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation. Uh, agent Jeremy Engel, uh, I guess, didn't make it over here either. It was because of their work. It was because of the work and the dedication of the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation that this case is where it is today. The facts were there. The case was there. I had the evidence. And as far as the guilt side of this case goes, it, it was going to be something fairly simple to present to a jury other than the emotional scars that we were going to leave on those jurors and everybody else inside the courtroom. And as I talk about the scars on those jurors, I have had jurors out of murder cases in the past stop me and say, I can't get those pictures. I can't get those recordings. I can't get that out of my mind. So this isn't just saving a family. This is also saving a community from having to listen to this. So with that, a huge thank you to those agents and to the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation for their hard work and their dedication and for all that they did in this case. They're very passionate people, and they were very passionate about this case. I would also note that the Chickasha Police Department, in their response to this case, did a phenomenal job as well. They had Anderson in their custody fairly quickly. Uh, so a um, large thank you to the Chickasha Police Department as well. And with that, I'll open it up and answer uh, any questions that you might have. Yeah, I believe it was the grandfather called the release of Anderson a big ex uh, experiment that was an epic fail. Is that something you agree with? No, what do you have to say to that? I think that <clears throat> I think that Anders Anderson's release was a massive mistake on the part of a lot of people. Um, had Anderson served the sentence that he was given here in Grady T County, a sentence of 20 years, this case would have never happened. Um, and I think there were some failures there, and I think there are some things that need to be looked at and corrected with respect to the legislature um, and and reeling in the pardon and parole board and their ability to commute sentences. Commutations uh, should be for cases where you clearly have an excessive sentence. In Oklahoma, over the last several years, what we have done is we have used it and I say we, I'm talking about the Pardon and Parole Board. The state of Oklahoma has used that process to lower the prison population, and that is not what a commutation is for. Jason, let me ask some technical questions on the sentence. Uh, the 
the, uh, the, the fines, if we're reporting on it, do we add the, the, the fines together and the VCAs together? Yes, the fines, I believe, will total somewhere in the neighborhood of $9,500. There was $9,500 that was ordered to be repaid to the Oklahoma Crime Victims Compensation Fund. And then the Victims Compensation Assessment uh, would have been somewhere around $40,000. So we add them all up together? Yes. Of course, life without parole consecutive is, is somewhat symbolic because he's got to serve, he won't ever complete the first one, technically. Correct. Yeah, and, and it was it was done that way to ensure uh, that even if a court ever uh, interprets life without parole to mean something other than what it says, which is what the intent of life without parole is, that means you go to prison and you're never let out, you're not eligible for parole. But if a court ever uh, interprets that in a different way, uh, and he actually would discharge one sentence, he would have to start serving the next one. And uh, there, there's an argument out there right now that uh, life in Oklahoma is 45 years, um, life without parole, life meaning you can have an opportunity for parole, uh, then life without parole means 40, a total of 45 years. And once you've served the 45 years, you've served your life without parole. I totally disagree with that interpretation because I think the legislature's intent was life without parole means exactly what it says, and that is life without parole. So that's done to ensure that there is never – uh, an opportunity for him to be released. And, of course, you know, with the plea agreement, and I, I think uh, we have copies of that if anybody wants it, but we, we, when I wrote that, uh, I wrote it with the intent of ensuring that he understood everything that was going on and any possible relief that Anderson might be able to uh, seek, that it's gone, it's off the table. Off of that, a part of the agreement was he can't do interviews, he can't write a book. Correct. Do, can you kind of go over that and what the reasoning was behind that so he can't profit off of what he's done? Well, and, and that's in, and I've done that in, in, in a couple of cases over the years. Uh, part of that is the family doesn't want to hear from him again. And, uh, you know, in, in Oklahoma right now, we see uh, a lot of, uh, I guess for a lack of better words, we see a lot of cases that become celebrity type cases. And that is absolutely not what any of us want in this case. I don't want him on television. I don't want him on 48 Hours. I don't want him on any other uh, type of magazine program talking about what he did or anything. I don't want him writing a book. I don't want him to financially profit from any of this. Uh, he shouldn't. Uh, and to be able to say you're going into prison and we're never going to hear from you again was a, uh, I, I think it was really important to the family that they know when he goes in, he's gone. He's not going to talk to the media. He's not going to talk to lawyers. He's not going to talk to anybody. We're not going to hear from him again. So uh, I think that was a, and quite frankly, I think was a big part of what they wanted out of all of this. One last thing here. Yes. So, uh, in the very beginning, it seemed like he admitted to these crimes. Uh, you also mentioned that the family, during the, uh, before the preliminary hearing, uh, approached you about this decision. Aside from the McGirt decision, uh, what delayed it for two years? Uh, McGirt was a big part of it, and uh, and and I'm going to take you back and. Uh, so, you know, as far as our, our cases go, when the case is filed, there's a new statute uh, that requires a permanent hearing to be done within nine months of the filing of a case. Um, prior to that, uh, we have a backlog. I mean, it's not it's not unusual to experience a situation where we have preliminary hearing conferences and have 50, 60 cases uh, set for preliminary hearing conference at one time. 
it's just a matter of finding the time on the court's docket to be able to set that uh, or set those items. Uh, there were some things that went on with this uh, with respect to, you know, the possibilities of mental health issues uh, that I think everybody wanted to look at before uh, we moved forward. And, that, and that's something else that I think uh, should be noted that, that I took into consideration. Uh, and I think everybody in here is aware. You heard, you heard in the courtroom uh, he had been treated for mental health. Uh, issues, and he was taking uh, some psychotropic medications before his release from prison. So, uh, you know, there, there were concerns, heavy concerns, uh, on the state side with respect to his mental health. You were right there pretty much almost next to him, no emotions at all? None. None, not that I saw, no. Um, as far as that goes, I would say it's it's one of the definitely one of, if not the most emotional that I've been involved in. Um, I think when you get into a situation, you have a case like this where you've got three people who were murdered, one of those being a four year old. Emotions are going to run uh, high, period. Uh, I, during uh, the reading of Toronzo's, uh, Toronzo Pies, uh, victim impact statement, it, it really got to me. I had to stop for a second because he referenced he's not going to be able to have a daddy-daughter uh, date. And that was something just this past Monday. My daughter and I, since she was four years old, have at Valentine's every year, have gone to a function and had a daddy-daughter date. This year we didn't go to the function. We just went and had dinner. She's 16 now. And to think uh, of what it would mean if I couldn't do that anymore. Uh, I mean, it, it 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 got to me, so I can't fathom what it would be like for the parents uh, who lost a child, the grandparents who lost a child, uh, and then the grandchildren and the and the children of those who lost a loved one uh, out of this case. So yeah, I. I don't know that I would say I was totally surprised that it was that emotional. Um, I am, I was somewhat surprised that it was, but uh, I think because of the nature of the case, uh, that's something that I think everybody could expect. And can you address uh, Mr. Anderson's mental state or maybe physical state at the time of the, uh, of the murders? Um, I'm going to say he was competent, um, you know, based on a couple of the interviews that he had, uh, but there were no psychologists uh, that got involved and started doing what we refer to as an NGRI, not guilty by reason of insanity, um, uh, evaluation. So uh, my position on it is going to be he was competent um, and he understood and he could appreciate the difference between right and wrong at the time he took these actions. I know the defense in this case well enough to know had uh, they had a reason to believe that he was not. Uh, you wouldn't have seen the entry of a plea of guilty today.